All right, if you're wanting to produce lots and lots and lots of the same thing, what do you reckon you need? Uh, yeah, a factory, okay, but a factory can produce lots of different things, right? Like a factory can produce what, lots of seeds? Yeah, if you're trying to grow something, but I'm thinking like I want to make a whole bunch of model cars and I want them all to be exactly the same. Wood? Oh, this is a hard one, eh? Did you have an idea? Elon, well, yeah, Elon Musk could probably figure it out. That's a fair point. Um, it's probably just as good as what I was thinking. Uh, no, you need what's called a pattern. You need something like a model, or you need something that you're going to be able to copy. It's a little bit like, I don't know if they still have these, but when I was a kid, we used to have tracing paper. And if you were really bad at drawing like me, you would get tracing paper and you would stick it on top of a picture. And then you'd get your pen and you'd go... Whoosh, when you do the outline, and then you go, yeah, look at my cool picture I didn't draw, I just copied from the other thing. Well, the thing under the tracing paper, you could call a pattern. Another way of thinking about it is like in sewing. You have a sewing pattern. And from the sewing pattern, you can produce lots of the same thing, just by following the pattern. In our sermons lately, we've been thinking about lots of patterns, haven't we? We've been thinking about old ladies being patterns. We've been thinking about old men being patterns. And tonight, we're thinking about ministers, people like me, being patterns, being someone that we can follow. You see, the Lord knows that we need people to help us, and so he provides us with examples. The Apostle Paul would say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And you see that the ultimate model that we try and copy is who? Jesus. That's right. It's always the right answer. Right? Jesus. We follow Jesus. But Jesus gives us godly people that we can follow, like mums and dads and brothers and sisters, when they're good, and friends that are good, people that copy Jesus. We copy them too. It's not always easy, though. And so we'll pray and ask God to help us do that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you do give us images and copies in this world that we can follow, but we also recognize there's lots of uh, copies in this world that we don't want to follow, and so we pray that you'd help us to follow the real thing, to follow Jesus and to follow the ones that he sends. Thank you that you do give us ministers that we can uh, copy our lives on, and we do pray that you'd help our ministers to be examples worth following. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're opening up to the book of Titus this evening again. For those who are visiting, we are working our way through the little book of Titus. We find ourselves in Titus chapter 2. We've been considering what godliness looks like for the different people in the church. We've thought about the older men and the older women and the younger women and the younger men. And we find ourselves now thinking about godly ministers and Lord willing, after that, we will think about bond servants, and then we'll be done with the list of different people. And we're reminded, aren't we? We remember that this is sandwiched in between those two statements about really the gospel doctrine. So verse 1 being that we teach what accords with sound doctrines, and the things that we're dealing with are the things that flow out of that. And in verse 11, that God's grace has appeared in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might say no to ungodliness and yes to godliness. 
And so these things are rooted deeply in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to be looking tonight at chapter 2 of Titus and just verse 7 and 8. And we'll just read those two verses. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word to us this evening. And before we consider it, let's come to him in a time of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we can serve. And as we've just sung, Lord, we do want to go forth as your soldiers into a battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil, and to walk faithfully before you. And so we pray, Lord, that as we think about the ministers that you've given us and their responsibilities, that you would help us, Lord, to to learn and to know and to see them and understand what you've called them to do and be. We ask that, Lord, each and every one of us would hear your word clearly and that you might mold us and shape us according to your word, that we might be faithful children of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are many different opponents to the Christian faith, aren't there? Uh, Both without the church and also within the church, also without the person and within the person. The Apostle Paul is well aware of that. And so we saw in chapter 1, he addressed some of these issues, the false teachers, uh, those who were sneaking in and causing all sorts of trouble in the church. You know, it's no surprising thing that, that the people of God come under attack. And because of that, it's even less of a surprising thing that the ministers of God come under a special amount of attack. And so our passage before us, what we're going to do is effectively consider it in reverse because it's a very helpful way of thinking about it. And so you'll notice the very last statement, so that an opponent, in verse 8, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us, that's really the aim of everything that Paul is going to instruct Titus. Titus, minister at Crete, This is how I want you to live. This is how I want you to act. And one of the big reasons being so that the opponents of God might be put to shame. You see, it is no new thing that ministers get slandered and attacked and accused and harassed by all sorts of different people. It's not a new thing whatsoever. And so it's imperative that ministers of the gospel act in a way that would put 
the opponents to shame. And so the question really before us is, how must a minister of the gospel act? What must he do? How must he be if he is going to silence the opponents that would come against him and the church of Jesus Christ? In order for Titus to live in such a way and serve in such a way that the opponents would be silenced, Paul gives them essentially three instructions. And as I said, in reverse, if you have a look at the text, he wants him to have sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that's the first thing we will consider. In his teaching, he is to show integrity and dignity. That's our second thing. And then thirdly, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. So there's three things. Sound speech in his teaching and then good works. So firstly, Titus is to be a model and to be godly as it relates to the message that he brings to God's people. Paul says in verse 8, have sound speech that cannot be condemned. One of the ways ministers silence opponents is by teaching and preaching with content that cannot be contradicted. It's not that it won't be contradicted. It's not that it won't be attacked. It's not that it won't upset people. It's not that it won't be a message that doesn't make the whole world get grumpy. It's that they will not be actually liable for charge. He says two things. It must be sound or healthy, and it must be above reproach. Now, what does he mean by sound and healthy? Well, one commentator gets it really well. He says, words can cripple and harm, but Titus's discourse is to be restorative and healing. Its soundness lies in its potential to strengthen and make whole. So on one hand, it is to be good food, spiritual food for the soul. And on the other hand, it is to be without any blame in it whatsoever. You can think about it a little bit like a home cook. The last thing you want your mother to put in your mashed potatoes is poison. It's not going to be particularly helpful, right? You also don't want it to put battery acid in it. That's also not going to be helpful. But you would, if you, if you can eat dairy, sorry to my family, uh, you can put butter in it, right? Put some cream in it maybe. Put some things that make it flavorful and yummy. But you wouldn't want too much. You wouldn't put a whole block of butter in there. Well, maybe. But uh, half. But you wouldn't put too much, right? Because then, even though it might taste good, it's not going to be healthy. And this is, this is the way the Apostle Paul is thinking about the ministry of the gospel as he preaches, as he teaches, as he comes alongside people. He is to both feed them, but also feed them in a way that is for their benefit, for their upbuilding, for their growth, so that they would be sustained and nourished and fed. But at the same time, it's not to be liable for receiving poison, heresy. It's not so much that no one's ever going to make an accusation against them, but the accusations will be blameless because the reality is when we preach the gospel, many people will bring accusations against us. 
Many people will hate the message that your minister brings. Many people in this world will be offended and critique it and believe that it's completely wrong. But the question is whether it's true in accordance with the Word of God, because this is the only food we've been given, right? We have been given no other spiritual sustenance to our soul. And so like a faithful home spiritual cook, the minister is to bring a well-balanced diet. And so sometimes we will dig into the New Testament and do a really slow walk through Titus. And other times we'll walk through a big book like First and Second Samuel. And other times we'll dig into poetry. And at Christmas time, we might deal with the incarnation. And all of it, it's like potatoes here and vegetables there and sausages here and all sorts of different food to, to nourish us and feed us. Now, that's, it might seem very straightforward. And in a sense, it is. But it's very practical and useful for all of us. Well, for one thing, for myself and for the other ministers here and those training to be ministers, because we must devote ourselves to preparing food properly, right? If, if our mothers walk in the kitchen last second and quickly just chuck the potatoes in the fry pan uncooked and then put them on the table, it's not going to be great, is it? Unless you like eating raw potatoes. And it's the same thing for our ministers. We want them to devote themselves to the preaching of God's word. But it's impactful on the sheep as well, because the sheep are the one that have to eat it. The sheep should be coming to church expectant, ready to receive food. And, and can I tell you just how encouraged I was by a comment that Ian Smith made when he was here. Ian Smith, if you don't know who Ian Smith is, he preached at our Reformation conference Ian, they're online, you can go view them, they're excellent. Ian Smith came up to me after our service, after all of the services were finished, and he said to me, Logan, I can tell, because he does a lot of visiting preaching, as you could imagine, he said, I can tell within five minutes of standing up in a new church whether the people are used to really digging in and receiving and eating good spiritual food. And he said, your church is like that. So let me just encourage you, brothers and sisters, you eat the food well. Don't change. Want more. Don't be content with just a little bit. You know, be like the child who's eaten way too much and says, can I just have a little bit more? Just a bit more, mum? I've still got my dessert stomach. You know, it was interestingly one of the, one of the marks in revivals was an incredible, insatiable hunger for the Word of God. And so there's stories of ministers who would stand up and they would preach for an hour and then they would start to walk away from the pulpit and the congregation would say, what are you doing? Get back in the pulpit. We want more. And so, story told, he would go back in, preach for another hour, go to walk away, and the people would say, we're not finished yet. Get back in the pulpit. I'm not sure what that would be like when you've only prepared one sermon, but that's all right. He had to deliver three that day. And that's not an unusual thing because the sheep were hungry. It has serious implications for our elders, right? Because our elders are called to guard the pulpit, to ensure that there is no false teacher standing here because if we have a false teacher who begins to subtly twist and turn 
and slowly slip insipid, unhealthy, and poisonous things into our diet, it will destroy the sheep, won't it? It has implications for where the sheep ought to look to be fed. You know, we're, we're in an unusual period of time in which, you know, in one day you can listen to the six best preachers in the world. I know, I listen to them. I love listening to Sinclair Ferguson and, and I like listening to Derek Thomas and John MacArthur and Joel Beakey and all these different guys. I, just, I love listening to them and receiving their preaching. But, you know, none of them pray for you or love you or know your names or anguish over your soul. And you don't know any of them. I know we feel like we do, especially when you've listened to as many of them as I have. But they'd walk past us on a street. God has given you this minister warts and all, to be a guardian over your soul. So listen to him and feed upon him and let, and let us pray every day that God would nourish us with simple meat, potatoes, and veggies, right? That we might be full and satisfied because do you know what happens when we're full and satisfied with rich content? We don't feel like eating other things, right? Isn't that true? You know, my, my wife and I, we go out for a date every Monday, lunch date, every Monday on my day off. We go to the same place, this great little Japanese place, and, and we always eat too much. They serve huge portions. And we finish eating it, and then we have to go buy food for dinner. It always works that way. So we go to the supermarket, and Josella will always say, we're weird creatures of habits. She'll always say, what should we get for the dinner for the kids tonight? And I'll say, I don't know what you think. And she goes, I don't know. I'm so full. I don't know what we should eat. And I'm like, oh, me too. And you're like, why? Because you're so full. The idea of eating anything is not very compelling. And that's what we become like, brothers and sisters, when we're full upon the rich fat of God in his word. When you go out into the world, the world doesn't satisfy. The world doesn't grab your attention in the same way. Because the word of Christ is dwelling richly within you, as the Apostle Paul would say. So firstly, the minister is to silence the opponents of the gospel through a message which is both true and satisfying. Secondly, they are to silence the opponents of the gospel through the method of their teaching. So not so much the content of their teaching, but the actual teaching itself. Have a look with me. Verse 8. Sorry, end of verse 7. In your teaching, now just so you're aware, teaching is a very broad word being used here. It's not the precise preaching word. It's quite broad. So day-to-day -day speech, uh, teaching in a Bible class, teaching a Bible study, any form of teaching whatsoever. In your teaching, show integrity and dignity. Now, to save you a long discussion on uh, Greek and vocab, the word integrity is, a, in my mind, a really poor choice of word. It's a really hard word to translate. 
I think it's a, integrity is really unhelpful. If you go back to some of the very early translations, they use words like incorruptible, and that's really the idea. Because it's not so much talking about the, the content, but rather that, that Titus himself, in, his, in the way he carries himself as a teacher, would be incorruptible. Now, that's really important because you've got to think about the context of Crete, right? What's crawling around Crete? False teachers. What's crawling around Crete? Judaizers, troublemakers, heretics. And what's crawling around New Zealand? What's crawling all over the media? What's crawling everywhere? People that would seek to, to take our ministers and, and convince them of different ideas and to get them to twist the doctrine. And so they must be incorruptible so that the, the false things come and it's like it bounces off us. We must know the truth and love the truth so much that anything else would have no inroads with us. We wouldn't be distracted by meaningless trivialities. It's one of the things that Paul says in the pastoral epistles over and over again. Don't be distracted by controversies and myths and all the different things that are going on around you. One commentator explains it like this. The serious situation in which the Cretan congregations find themselves calls for instruction of due gravity and reverence in contrast to the profit-driven babble of detractors and troublemakers. You see, that the way this teaching is to be delivered is not just with incorruptible stature, but with gravity. That's the word there that I think the ESV puts as dignity, doesn't it? Yes, dignity. Integrity and dignity. It's gravity. It's, I think, probably gravitas. I can't think of a better way of describing it. It's a serious nature. Someone who captured this really well was Robert Murray McShane in his own experience. He said that, records in his diary, that one day he was walking among the fields, very young in his ministry. He was walking among the fields and all of a sudden, it struck him that every single one of the people that would hear him would one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Gravity. Seriousness. This is why the pulpit is not a place for jovial flippancy. Because death and life is in the balance, right? One of you might see Jesus before next Sunday. We might all see Jesus before next Sunday. The minister needs to walk into this place with that weightiness upon him. And can I just tell you personally, that is a serious weightiness. I mean, just in the room here, we have what? 70 people? There's 70 souls that the minister of God will give an account to God for every word he has spoken. And every one of those souls will one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for their life. And testify as to whether they are true children of God or not. I'm reminded of, of Moody 
who one day ended a sermon saying, next week, he like got halfway through the sermon, stopped because he ran out of time, and he said, and next week we will consider Christ. And walked down from the pulpit and walked out the door, and that week the Chicago fires happened, and a third of his congregation died. Imagine the weight upon his heart. Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about logic on fire. It's this, this combination of fervor and passion and seriousness and depth all combined together. Piper talks about having emotions that match the weightiness and the truth of what we're dealing with. It's not an easy thing. I often feel for the Carlos and Jeffs of the world who are just, you know, trying to figure this whole thing out. Pray for them. It's not an easy thing. Our ministers must, must teach with gravity while being incorruptible in their hearts. And I think there's an important application in this for our sheep. And that is that our, our judgment of, of a preacher is not preference. You understand what I mean by that? The judgment of a preacher is not our preference. It's really easy for us to think this is the type of preaching I like. Some of us like really John Piper preachers, if you've heard John Piper preach, you know. Like judo chops the sky as he's preaching and just volume up and down and all over the show. He oozes passion. And some of us like John MacArthur's who are very much more solid and flat with fire. And we all have different preferences. All of us do but the judgment is what the Word of God says. And He makes us all differently. You see, it's not enough just for us to have a godly message because a godly message, the content of the message, can actually be undermined in the delivery of it. I, I grew up in a church where we used, and some of you may have experienced this, we used to have reading sermons. If you've never heard of a reading sermon, you're about to experience something new. It's, when a, a, it's because in the church I grew up in, only an ordained minister could preach. So if you didn't have an ordained minister, then one of the elders would read someone else's written sermon. And the content was great, but often, sadly, not always, but often you could imagine how they were delivered, right? It's like listening to someone and read in a monotoned way what the sermon said. Some of them were great, but lots of them were just flat. And, the, and the, the content was just like kind of destroyed by the, by the method, right? And our ministers must be aware of that. But, you know, there's one which is, I think, far more serious. And it's interesting because one of the commentators who I love and who I've actually quoted a whole bunch of times, his name's Taylor, um, he, said, he said, the most important thing is having the content right because... If the life is wrong, at least the content's going to do something helpful. He might destroy himself, but at least the congregation will be fed. I actually disagree. I want to flip it the other way. And this is why I flipped the text. It's because you can have the perfect content and deliver it in the perfect way and destroy it with your life. And by you, I mean me unless you're a minister here today. 
then I mean you too. The Apostle Paul says to Titus up front, show yourself in everything, or in everything, show yourself to be a model of good works. Ministers are to silence the opponents of God through the way they live their life. It's interesting, isn't it? Because he's just gone through these different categories of people. We've got the older ones, and they're teaching the younger ones. The older men to the younger men, and the older ladies to the younger ladies. Well, I can't remember if I just said that wrong, but you know what I mean. The older ones to the younger ones. And then he rounds all of that off by saying, in everything, you, Titus, be a model to everyone. See, he's not just to teach the flock or feed the sheep. He is to live among them as a pattern, like I was talking about with the children, a carbon copy, that the congregation might take a tracing piece of paper and stick it upon the life of the minister and outline him. Like Paul might be able to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And Paul says it over and over and over again, imitate me. Imitate me. Imitate me. Ministers of the gospel, as one writer put it, are player coaches, not theoreticians who place burdens on people but are not willing to lift a finger to move them. You ever experience one of those people who, who's the expert on every sport but never plays any of them? The guy who can tell you exactly how to ride a motocross bike but has never ridden one in their life? Who knows the theory of everything but never actually steps in and does it? That's not what a minister is to be like. He is to proclaim how to live the Christian life and then walk forth as a Christian soldier, setting the way. Following the captain, but setting the way nonetheless. An, an under-shepherd of Christ who would follow the chief shepherd that the sheep can follow. That's the way God's organized. It's just like in a family, right? Who do the children follow? They don't make up their own way. There's a reason they sound like you. There's a reason they act like you and tie their shoes the same way and, and eat the same way. It's because they copy you, right? It's not rocket science. And it's the same in the church of Jesus Christ. We are to be like a, a die-cast stamp. You know, I've got a seal at home, a wax seal. I love it. It's, it's made from uh, John Calvin's seal. I had it specially made, and I love this thing, and I love sealing envelopes with it. So satisfying. When do you get an envelope with a wax seal on it? But, you know... It doesn't matter how many times I stick that thing on a piece of wax, it turns out identical every single time, right? It's always the same, over and over and over again. And that's what the minister is to be for the congregation of God. It's not a small thing. It's not a small thing to do, to be a model to the people of God. And if he gets it wrong, his teaching 
and his doctrine will be completely undermined. So Calvin puts it, doctrine will have little authority unless its power and majesty shine in the life of a minister as in a mirror. Or Matthew Pooley, another classic commentator, said, that physician proves ordinarily little valued in his prescriptions to his patients, whom they know to be in the same danger and sick of the same disease and yet refuses himself to use that which he prescribes. The patients will surely say to him, Physician, heal thyself. I mean, what would you think? You know, last Sunday night, no, the Sunday before, we, we talked about self-control among men, right? We talked about the need for guarding ourselves, especially against things. We talked about pornography and other things. Now, what would you think it would do if all of the teenager males discovered all of a sudden that actually I was just prolifically addicted to pornography? It would destroy everything I said, right? It would become meaningless. Like, why would we even listen to what you just said? Look at your life. It's a disaster. This struck home to me with just significant power this week. There's a, a minister, or was a minister, called Liam Golliger. And I have listened to quite a lot of his sermons. Amazing preacher. And, and I listened to him preach through several different books at conferences and just benefited greatly. This week, he was removed from his church for adultery. Committed in 2014 with a deacon, yes. Uh, that day I read that, I went and deleted all of his sermons off my phone. How, how can I listen to it? You know, the very content I was listening to, he was preaching while he was doing this. How do you think the church feels? What do we do with all of those things you've said? All of the counsel, all of the premarital counseling, all of the marriage counseling. In one act, a minister of the gospel can destroy Everything he's sought to build up. And the ministers must set a pattern. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Because we don't have the strength to stand. We're not godly enough in and of ourselves. We are weak, broken, just like you are. And our only hope is exactly the same as yours, God's grace. And so pray that he might strengthen us to live before you, to set an example that you might be able to follow. But there's an implication on this for you as well, right? You need to follow them. They're there for a reason. And that means we need to be together, don't we? Oh, what a blessing we get to be here twice together. Look for other opportunities. Seek to follow your ministers. Spend time with them. But the other thing is, you know, in, 
in the same way, we're all meant to be examples to one another, aren't we? Though the minister has a special calling in the sense as the leader of God's people, that the brothers and sisters are all given to one another to be examples. And we desperately need one another to do this. And if you just think older to younger, like we've been looking at, you know, older teenagers, you can set little children in the paths of righteousness or the path of folly. Older people, you can set young married couples in the right way or the wrong way, by the way you live, by the example you set, by the choices you make. And all of these things will silence our opponents, not because they'll have nothing to say, but because at the end of the day, when they come and they lay out their accusations against us, we will be able to say with clear consciences, I have done rightly before the Lord. And as Peter says to the churches in Asia, that on the day of God's appearing, they will be put to shame. Because all will see that the church did what was right. That's what Paul's getting at here. Milne, one of the commentators, said, the best advocacy for Christianity should be the quality of the lives of its leaders, the spirit of their service, and the content of their message. Unfortunately, the public discrediting of the church at large by a few of its leaders is a body blow from which the church can only recover with the utmost effort and with divine help. Hasn't that been your experience that you've sat down with an unbeliever and they've said to you, oh yeah, but you know, the church is just filled with like pedophiles and stuff. It's in the media. We see it everywhere. It's just a bunch of creeps. We know what your leaders are like. There's problems everywhere. Death blows to the witness of the church. May God grant it that it not be that way among us. That our ministers and our elders and our deacons and our congregants live lives of godliness that would shine forth in splendor and brilliance that no one would be able to oppose. And it's only going to happen by God's grace, right? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your love and your mercy, your steadfastness, your kindness. And we do pray, Lord, that you would help Help our ministers, help myself to, to live lives worthy of the gospel. Help us all, Lord, to live lives worthy of the gospel. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to you in all that we do. Help us to encourage one another. Help us to build one another up. Help us to pray for one another. Help us to pray for our leaders. And help us to follow their example. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.